listeners to another episode of the Energy Central Power Perspectives podcast. Located in New York City, I'm your host, Jason Price of West Monroe Partners and Community Engagement Ambassador for Energy Central. Joining is my colleague, Matt Chester, Community Manager for Energy Central, located in Orlando, Florida. Matt, how are you doing today and ready for our next guest? Jason, it's it's always a great day when we get to chat with somebody from the Energy Central community about a topic they're passionate about. And knowing today is one of those days is exciting enough for me. Yes, I'm excited as well. However, before we introduce our guests, let's talk about Energy Central. Since 1995, Energy Central has been a trusted news and information source for professionals working in the power industry. Today, Energy Central is more than just a news source. Energy Central is a network of community groups focused on specific topics in the industry. Our managed communities are a place where professionals like you can come together to share, learn, and connect in a collaborative environment. We invite you to become a member if you haven't already and join over 200,000 other professionals working in the power industry. To join, simply visit www.energycentral.com. Membership is free. Our next guest is a thought leader in the climate crisis and climate solutions and an advisor to corporate and nonprofit entities on climate content and communications. He is publisher of The Energy Mix, a Canadian e-digest that provides curated content and open dialogue on climate change, energy, and carbon-free solutions. He has been a member of Energy Central since 2018, and his newsletters have generated over 340,000 views. He has written extensively on how to bring a wider range of voices and communities into the conversation about practical, affordable climate solutions, while insisting that everyone in that conversation, including the fossil lobby, follow the evidence where it leads. He recently gave a TEDx talk in Ottawa asking the very important question, and that is, what if we're asking the wrong question? It is a provocative statement, and no doubt one that deserves more attention. Mitchell Beer, welcome to Energy Central's Power Perspectives. Thanks, Jason. Really happy to be here. Let's go back to your question. What if we are asking the wrong question as it relates to climate change? It's the wrong question, and it's based, I think, on the wrong set of assumptions. The question we want to be asking is how will enough people see themselves in the picture of the transformative change that we all know we need to make, and a lot of it in the next decade, to get not just the political will, but the public demand um, that will get us where we need to go on the timescale available to us. Um, It's the wrong question, but also the wrong assumptions, as I was saying. First assumption that I hear and see everywhere I go, and that is that the transition is about loss and pain, not opportunity and gain. That is not to say that there aren't communities, that there are not parts of each of our countries, parts of the world, where the transition is already difficult and and sort of the path from here to there is fraught and is going to continue to be. But at the end of it, you know, you've seen the numbers on the tens of millions of jobs to be created in the carbon-free economy, on the health benefits, on the economic development benefits, the investment benefits, everything that we in the climate community call the co-benefits. I think that one way we turn around the question is to realize that to anybody who's not already inside the bubble we all live in as climate and energy practitioners, the things we care about, whether it is um, driving down emissions 50% by 2030 per the IPCC, or whether it's just you know delivering electricity and making sure that the utility stays on, that the, that the lights stay on, literally, that those things in people's day-to-day lives 
are the co-benefits and the things that they get out of the transition, like not being stuck in congestion, like loving their bike paths and nature trails, like having healthier soils with more productive and profitable farms. Those are all the things that happen in their lives that matter the most. And if we get that conversation right, I think a lot of good things flow from it. Mitchell, thank you. But what what are some of the, what should some of the assumptions be? It's largely some of the assumptions that we've been getting wrong. And I think the fact that we're doing this is understandable in the sense that we are often coming out of technical fields um, that are not about um, sort of listening and bottom-up communication. And we're coming from legacy industry models that have most definitely not been, although, although a lot of companies are trying now, have not necessarily been about listening to customers, certainly listening to communities, treating people as citizens. Right. And and all of that, I think, leads us to um, top down approaches to what we do. So um, it means that the climate solutions that a lot of companies and a lot of governments are putting forward now so, so clearly come out of the PR office, not out of the engineering office, or the project management office where they really need to be. That mistake gives way to all manner of greenwashing. We make the assumption that solving for climate change is a problem that we can kick down the road rather than actually listening to the IPCC with its 1.5 degrees pathways report in October 2018, which basically said 2030 is the deadline to get to, to hit 50 percent. You know, and climate scientists have pointed out that's not a hard and fast figure. If we hit 48 percent, we'll still survive. On the other hand, every 0.1 degrees by which we missed the 1.5 is measured in lives saved or lost. So, so the stakes could not be higher. The thought that we can do what we've always done, that it's business as usual and we can kick it down the road, that leads to all manner of science fiction, you know, with companies claiming for a straight face with a straight face that we can have carbon capture and storage that doesn't bankrupt its proponent or claiming that natural gas is a viable bridge to a renewable future because we'll somehow capture all that methane because our PR people said we could, or that, you know, this is semantic tick that a small modular reactor is actually small in any real, real world sense. If we start with solutions that begin with communities, that takes us in the direction of least cost energy solutions. It takes us in the direction of much, much greater emphasis on energy efficiency and conservation. The whole idea that we've, we, we've had for a generation, but that's never received enough emphasis that the cheapest, most effective, most environmentally sound unit of electricity is the megawatt, is the unit we never have to generate. And electricity being more pertinent now than ever before because now the trend is toward electrifying everything, including personal transport. So if we turn those legacy assumptions on their head, as a lot of organizations, a lot of companies are beginning to do, and I think this is very, this transition is very much a work in progress, that's where we'll start getting the momentum we need because we'll get the buy-in as people can see that, yes, there are actually solutions here that make sense in their own lives. Okay, but are you suggesting that if we simply ask the right questions, then those who are not listening will begin to do so? It's not quite as simple as that, but where... I, I guess the, the, the moment that got me on this track was with the release of the IPCC report. To me, one of the most important moments, apart from all the obvious messages about 50% by 2030, one of the most important moments in that launch was at the press conference in Incheon, South Korea, 
where Jim Skeel, who is a veteran energy modeler from the UK and an IPCC author, basically said more more elegantly than I'm about to, that, you know, we know what the technologies are, we know that they're cost effective, they're ready for prime time, we're ready to roll. The last tick, the last box to be ticked, he said, is political will. So I tried to think what political will would look like to a member of a government that was taking heavy fire from both sides, from the climate and energy community for buying a solid pipeline that many of us did not want to be involuntary owners of, but at the same time, taking a lot of heat for, from the perspective of legacy industries, pushing far too fast and far too aggressively on the climate emergency. And as you know, that government went to the polls in October 2019. And in hindsight, um, we know that on a squeaker, they're a minority government, they want a second term. We didn't know that in October 2018. And so when I heard political will, all I could think was that governments that show the political will that we have all been asking for for years or decades go to the electorate and find out that no good deed goes unpunished. Australia is now in the third term of a vicious climate denier government that was brought to power by a carbon tax and by the public reaction to it. And in October 2018, we didn't yet know that Canada was going to go in another direction. We did. 62% of our voters, 62% of our electorates supported a party that in one way or another supported much more aggressive climate action. But that's hindsight. So to me, asking, asking a different question and having a different conversation recognizes that in a way, asking for political will is just ticking the box unless the really hard work has been done to connect with the people who represent the public demand that will drive the political will. And it was at that moment, thanks to Jim Skia, honestly, that it finally dawned on me that that is the single most important thing we need to do because it's not a technology problem anymore, not at all. It's a people problem, it's a perception problem. And honestly, that problem has been driven by decades and uh, tens if not hundreds of millions of dollars that the fossil industry has poured into funding climate denial and climate confusion. We're up against that. And now we're up against a deadline, thanks to them. So Mitchell, kind of a, a big picture question here, but for all those reasons that, that you mentioned, you know, people who do follow the situation with the climate and, and want to make a difference, it, it can certainly feel a bit hopeless sometimes. So what, what do you think are the best actions that everyday citizens can do to try to influence that change? That is one of the most common questions I hear. And I think the interesting challenge is to treat that as a yes and. And and I think I've just revealed that I do improv comedy in my spare time because yes and is what you build an improv scene on. What people can do in their own lives is going to depend on their lives. You know, do they live in a home where they can change out their light bulbs for LEDs? Do they work on a farm or live in a rural community where they can pay attention to soil health and, and soil carbon sequestration. And there are probably literally hundreds of other options in between. And not that those aren't important, but I heard a statistic somewhere, and maybe this is something I should put out to the energy central community because darned if I've been able to find the reference for this and I've been trying, but I keep hearing anybody, please let me know if you have a reference. I'll be endlessly grateful that 
if all of us ever in the world were to do everything we can in our own lives, in the part of the supply chain that we can control with our own hands and do it consistently, which is a huge if, because none of us, any of us ever are going to be 100% consistent. If we did all those things, it would get us 40% of the way to decarbonization. So two things are true about that. 40% by one mechanism, by one wedge, even if that wedge is many tens or hundreds of billions of decisions, 40% in one shot is fantastic if we could get it. And it's 60% short of where we need to be because we need 100% by 2050. And, and you know, there, there's no compromise on that because the science doesn't lie. So to me, the question about what people can do in their own lives reflects the fact that for, again, a couple of decades, we've been telling ourselves and everybody else that if everyone just does their bit, we'll be okay. And that's not true. It's not as simple as that. The Both the need and the opportunity are so much bigger. And so the most important piece, I think, in starting people out in their own lives and having people start out in their own lives is to not tell them, but listen to them and learn from friends, neighbors, family members, colleagues, whoever we interact with, what it will take for them to engage with a piece of the bigger picture problem that makes sense to them. So if somebody lives in a far suburb, for example, and the first thing they really want to pay attention to is the plastic wrap that they don't have any choice about that comes along with the produce they buy every week. Great. That's a lifestyle thing you can deal with. Now that we've had that conversation, how can we help you lobby your city councillor for the transit you need to reduce your commute times or lobby the rest of the city council to reduce urban sprawl by not extending the urban boundary, which, by the way, is an issue we're dealing with in Ottawa right now. Taking that small picture piece of the puzzle, definitely dealing with that, but then bringing it into the bigger systemic stuff that we can't control in our own lives. Because if we don't, first of all, we won't get it done. And secondly, people will realize we're not getting it done. And the reaction very often is, why do I bother? You know, I've been doing this stuff for years. I've been doing it for decades. The fossils are still polluting and CO2 is still going up. And guess what? Now we're dealing with climate despair as a massive challenge. So people have to feel empowered to deal with the bigger picture issues as well. Mitchell, as you know, in the U.S., climate policy as it relates to the Paris, Paris Agreement is primarily being enacted at the state and local levels. As a writer and publisher who covers this topic extensively, please describe to our listeners the similarities and differences between the United States and Canada at the federal and state provincial level. Well, thanks for that. I, mean, I think the most obvious difference is between our national governments, ours is functional and yours isn't. Um, and we are so far beyond that being anything like a partisan comment, but you know that better than I do. You live there. But then again, the differences are not quite as obvious as you would think. We have a federal government that is, I think, making a good faith effort um, to get a national climate plan uh, not only laid out, but implemented in contrast to an administration in your country that for at least the next half year or so is going to be continuing an agenda of gutting every climate regulation or energy regulation that could possibly uh, make a difference on climate is and is is uh, led by a climate denier. That having been said, I think a point in common between the two countries is that we we both still behave like petrostates. In Canada right now, uh, I don't know how much of this would be coming across the border or how frequently, but I, I mentioned earlier 
that in their first term of office, our current sitting government bought us all a pipeline. The Trans Mountain Pipeline, then owned by Kinder Morgan, was in not at all good shape financially. And so our federal government decided to bail them out. <laughs> a lot of us were not asked about that. As we speak, although this may well be resolved in the next couple of weeks, there is another very large tar sands, oil sands mine. It would be a $20.6 billion project in Canadian dollars in Alberta. And that is under consideration by our, uh, by our federal cabinet. And I'm sure you must be hearing the news this week of the blockades across the country. A large share of our passenger and freight rail network is shut down right now because of the sort of supportive protests backing a, a group of hereditary Indigenous chiefs in, in British Columbia and, and communities that have, had been blockading uh, a natural gas pipeline from the shale fields in northeastern British Columbia. That blockade was broken by our national police force, the RCMP, last week, and the protests have flowed since then and continue to this minute. So the same stresses the same tensions that I think you're seeing around fossil development, around pipeline development. All of that is very much live here. And I would say that the solutions are the same as well, um, that we do know we do have a collection of, I'll say energy service options, because energy efficiency isn't about supply, it's about demand. But there is a collection of options that, as the IPCC said in 2018, are affordable and known and ready for prime time. And things are going to be tense and fraught until federal, provincial, state governments um, get on board with that. So, so that, I think, is a, a transition challenge that both countries are in the midst of right now. In Canada, we do have, I think, a similar breakdown between what's going on in fossil producing regions and, and, and the rest of the country. From what I've understood in the U.S., it is largely the shale producing countries around the Marcellus and the Permian, where both the stresses and the, 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 the environmental stresses and the boom and bust economy around fossil development are really centered. For us, it's Alberta and Saskatchewan. And again, until people can see themselves in the picture, until people who, in good faith, cast their lot with this industry until they can see that when, um, you know, when there's a conversation about a transition, it doesn't mean they're going to land in a job where they get to keep saying, would you like fries with that? It has to be something that really works for people who are, you know, out to make a living as we all are. One thing that's been happening in Canada that I think is very promising is that in addition to the transition off oil and gas, we now have a a fixed mandate to phase out our remaining uh, coal-fired generation by 2030. And the remaining coal plants are in Alberta, Saskatchewan, New Brunswick, and Nova Scotia, so four of our 10 provinces. And over the last couple of years, a just transition task force has been doing exceptionally good work to look at what that changeover will, will look like for those communities, for those workforces, and getting down into the details. You know, it's fine to say, we're committed to a just transition, and that absolutely has to happen. Well, that's very nice. You know, it is. I mean, it's better to say it than not, as we see in the U.S. But when you're right on the line and how that conversation goes will determine whether you can meet your mortgage. It has a way of focusing the mind as it would in any community, as it would in any industry. And what we've been hearing 
from the work of our coal task force is that it's not easy. It is going to take years, not months, and it's doable. There's a pathway. And that actually points to a pathway that I think will work for oil and gas just as it will for coal. The other factor is that both our countries are operating in the same global economy, which means in the end we need the, 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 the same things. And this is going to get a little bit repetitive, but more emphasis on practical, least cost approaches to supplying the energy services that we all need. And that begins with efficiency, decarbonizing the grid and electrifying everything. And one more time, much more emphasis on public outreach and education so that people can really begin seeing themselves in the picture. And I think that's something that's needed in both countries. Mitchell Beer, I want to thank you for your time and for this fascinating discussion. You can always reach Mitchell through the Energy Central platform, where he welcomes your questions and comments. Energy Central's podcast, The Power Perspectives, would not be possible if it were not for our devoted sponsors, including Wes Monroe. Wes Monroe works with the nation's largest investor-owned utilities in their telecommunication, grid modernization, and digital and workforce transformations. From defending a rate case to preparing a business case, West Monroe utilizes a multidisciplinary team that blends utility, operations, and technology expertise covering topics like aging infrastructure, electric vehicles, AMI, MDM, and ADMS deployment, and industry disruptors like DERs and cybersecurity. To ESRI, the Environmental System Research Institute, ESRI is an international supplier of geographic information, GIS software, WebGIS, and geodatabase management applications. To Guidehouse, formerly Navigant, a leading global provider of consulting services to the public and commercial markets with expertise in energy, sustainability, and infrastructure. And to SeaPower. At SeaPower, we help customers make the decisions today that guide them across the bridge to energy's future. Where, where will your energy take you? For more information, visit SeaPower. Once again, I'm your host, Jason Price. Plug in and stay fully charged in the discussion by hopping into the community at energycentral.com. And see you next time at the Energy Central Power Perspective Podcast. Podcast.